0: When I was ready, I headed out on a nine-month road trip. I wouldn't advise doing that anybody else, but that's what I did. And it took me all around the United States. Somehow I managed over those nine months to drive nearly 25,000 miles. Hello, my name is Richard Frischman. I'm a photographer and... I partnered with Brian Foster, a professor at the University of Virginia, to produce a new book, Ghosts of Segregation, American Racism, Hidden in Plain Sight. Uh, I began photographing this project around 2016, and it's really built upon the premise that our most accurate societal autobiography, is in our built landscape. Because we don't think about what our built landscape reveals about us when we're creating it, Uh, it's, it's more honest, I believe, than what we would say about our society ourselves. At least I know if you did a tour of my house, you would get a different idea of me than what I might tell you. That stash of six pints of Ben and Jerry's, I probably would not mention in my discussion of who Rich Frischman
1: is. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We're joined by Richard Frischman, he and Dr. Brian Foster, authors of Ghosts of Segregation, a photojournalism collection depicting a visual history of segregation through the buildings and landscapes where racism left its mark. Did you go on a a tour to uh, find all these places?
0: It was a self-created tour. Uh, During the lockdown, I spent a lot of time researching additional locations. I had started the project four years prior and had about 75 locations uh, already photographed and during the lockdown, I found uh another hundred fifty approximately had them actually on a map and when I was ready, uh I headed out on a nine month road trip. I wouldn't advise doing that anybody else, but that's what I did, and it took me. All around the United States, somehow I managed over those nine months to drive nearly 25,000 miles going from location to location. Most of them I had planned to visit and scout and photograph, but there were probably maybe 20% that I just came upon, either through conversations with locals or conversations with historians uh, Mm -hmm. or just architects. Things came up that I hadn't planned on, and some of Mm -hmm. those are the most meaningful pictures.
1: To get an idea of what you're taking pictures of, for example, colored entrances at movie theaters, uh, beaches Mm -hmm. that used to be uh, segregated, you have a picture of the New York City slave market. You researched this, or how did you know where to find these places?
0: I used a lot of various resources. The online resources would be places like BlackPast.org or the EJI.org, the Equal Justice Initiative, or historical preservation sites. And then I read a lot and found locations for many of the pictures just by reading.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
0: there's also the places that I recalled from my own childhood as being important. Mm-hmm. I'm old enough that I can remember a lot of the early days of the civil rights struggle, the modern civil rights struggle. So, And that is part of what propelled me into this.
1: For example, there was a, a picture, I don't, know, don't remember where it was, of a a colored entrance to a movie theater and it's up at balcony level. And the patrons who are African-American and not only African-American, I guess, a lot of these, if you were Asian or something like that, but anyway, you had to climb up this in the outside, you know, it could have been raining or could have been snowing. uh, It's Mm -hmm. just, uh, when you think about it, it's not a very uh, fun way to go to see a movie
0: no what strikes me particularly hard is that even these simple pleasures were opportunities for white supremacists to assert their their supremacy and remind people of color that they were not equal sort of a humiliation that is completely unmoored from this It's well. I'm at a loss for words. That stairway on the outside that you referenced, I believe, was on the Texan Theater in Kilgore, Texas, and it it reveals something about the nature of all of these pictures. um, That when you're looking around, there's so much we assume and so much that is banal that we miss. the the history that's around us. In that case, the Texan Theater, I had been there uh, in 2014 in almost the exact spot, but I was working on a different project, and I didn't notice those stairs. If I had, I would not have understood their significance. A couple years later, I was working on this project, and that was one of the sites that I hadn't planned On visiting, I was just driving down the street, the main street of Kilgore, and I I saw it. And it was exactly like a famous photograph that I had studied by Marion Post Wolcott. She shot a picture in 1939 at a theater in Belzoni, Mississippi, of a black man ascending the stairs Mm. to a, uh, and when I saw this, I I realized that is exactly what this is. This is a colored entrance. I had to then find documentation. In this case, a journalist who had lived in Kilgore in the 1950s and 60s verified that that was a colored entrance.
1: Another one that I thought was very moving was in some kind of like diner whatever, the people to split the room where white people and um, African-Americans would be separate. They put up this, mm-hmm. I don't know, like wall. A, I mean, a partition that says yeah, partition. Pepper on it? That's right. Yeah. You tell us about that.
0: That's actually the very first picture chronologically that I shot at the time. I wasn't working on this project. I was working on one that was a little more upbeat, more about Americana. And in this case, I, I was in the historic town of Gonzales, Texas, on the street photographing a Coca-Cola sign. And a gentleman in a pickup with a shotgun on the rack pulled up and uh, asked what I was doing and told me if I was interested in history I needed to go to Templin Saloon. I don't frequent saloons, but this guy kind of roped me into it. I, I Seeing that shotgun and his assertion that I needed to go there, I complied. It turned out that he owned Templin Saloon. And when I walked in, the bartender took me around and showed me all these historic items on the wall. But what I ended up... Photographing was something that I saw immediately and that he hadn't talked about, which was this odd little partition with a what turns out to be a pre-1929 Dr. Pepper logo that's still on it. When Templin Saloon was built in 1907, this was part of the architecture of the time, separating people of color from White people. now, And I want to clarify that term, people of color. You, you inferred correctly earlier that it was not just African Americans. In Gonzales, most of the people of color were Hispanic. And the bartender mm-hmm. who was showing me around said, who, he was a young Hispanic man, said, my grandmother had to sit behind that wall until the mid-1960s. That's the case with all the so-called colored entrances I did photograph. It applied to everybody who wasn't uh, absolutely of European descent, white European descent.
1: Right. Now, it sounds like that wall is still there. Is it still in use?
0: It was retained when when the saloon was remodeled, I think that was in, well, I, I don't recall, but it was in the early 2000s that it was remodeled. And they retained that wall as a reminder of sort of the sins of our past, so we don't mm. repeat them. Uh, but, but since I photographed this, I believe that has been torn down. The saloon was remodeled yet again, and I think that was that was lost.
1: Well, you mentioned the sins of the past. Is
0: this era past,
1: or is it still with us?
0: Well, it's certainly still with us. Uh, unfortunately, I regret to see that it's somewhat re- resurgent. I was motivated by seeing what happened, what what is happening around our country. This is not a resolved issue
1: at all. A lot of times we think up here in the North that Well, this was their problem down in the South, but you found examples all over the country. Oh, yes.
0: Uh, And that was much of why I went back out on the road in 2021. I wanted to emphasize that this was not just in the South. One of the pictures I shot in 2020, I didn't do a lot of photography during the lockdown, But I did go to the Moore Theater in Seattle, my hometown, and there is a colored entrance there that was largely applied to Asian people, but anybody who wasn't absolutely white had to ascend those stairs. I was, when I first discovered that that was a colored entrance, I was completely shocked because once again it was hidden by my assumptions and the banality of, of it. It just looks like a black door, black double door. And in fact, I had stood right outside that for numerous rock concerts in the 1970s and 80s in, in a line to go in. And I, it never occurred to me that I was standing by a
1: segregated theater entrance Richard Frischman, a photojournalist, uh, talking about his book, Ghosts of Segregation. In just a moment, we'll be talking with uh, Dr. Brian Foster with uh, his insights into this new book. We continue discussion of Ghosts of Segregation with Dr. Brian Foster, a professor and essayist from the University of Virginia, where he's a professor, I believe, of, of sociology. Did these uh, pictures that Rich uh, Frischman took, did they mean something to you? Yeah, they
2: did. They, they, um, so I had actually seen a few of the pictures and had heard about the collection by way of a piece in the New York Times, I think, that ran in 2020. This was before I had met Rich, before any parts of the project, the collaboration, had kind of materialized. And I remember being struck by the story that I read because it kind of paralleled how I think about my own research and writing, and that is thinking about the ways that our environments, the places that we live, that we work, and so forth, how they shape our lives, how they shape the social world, how they reflect and refract our histories, so to speak. And so that was my initial introduction to some of the photographs, uh, and then after talking with Rich and after agreeing to come on to the project and seeing more of them, you know, they, I, I would say that they affected me in a couple of ways. I'm a student of Black American history. And and so from that perspective, I found the, co- the the kind of idea of the collection and Rich's execution of it, capturing the various sites. I just saw it as as kind of a different way to enter these conversations that I have with students, that I have with everyday folks, with younger people, with family members. Uh, And so just sort of as a student of history and knowing sort of of these events that have happened to my people, you know, that was, it it was, for for me, the pictures kind of struck me as as like a really important and powerful way to enter those stories kind of from a different angle. Uh, And then as you get, or as I hope folks will get from the essays, there was the personal impact. I'm not just a student of Black American history, I'm a child of it. Um, As I say in, in different ways throughout the book, my father was an industrious entrepreneur, and my mama worked her whole life, still working now at 65, and all of my grandparents are sharecroppers. We grew up in country Mississippi, northeast Mississippi. And so, so many of the histories that are captured in the land, that are captured in the pictures, are uh, histories that touch my family and by extension touch me. And so uh, in that way, there, there's there's a powerful resonance, a personal resonance where I'm thinking about, for example, the impact or ways in some of these events, Bloody Sunday, for example, the assassination of Dr. King, for example, the integration of of Little Rock High School and other high schools across the South. How, for example, my grandmother w- would have experienced them. She was born in 1927. So, yeah, I'd say there there are a couple of ways that the photos impacted me, both as as a student of Black American history and a child of it. And and I'm I'm hopeful that folks who buy or engage with with ghosts of segregation that one of those angles resonates with them as well, whether it is Sort of information, or what can I learn about the history of this country, this particular slice, the history of this country, or what might I learn about the experiences of those folks who have been impacted by it in more personal ways?
1: Brian the Foster rejoins us. What about your own personal experiences as as a child or growing up? I mean, do you do you remember this, or is this something that you experienced even when you were a young adult, you know, being going going to a, the colored entrance of, of the movie theater or the restaurant or whatever. Well, well I'll tell you,
2: I, I what I remember from my childhood is the pride that my grandmother, in particular, my grandparents, her husband, grandmother, grandfather, um, the pride that they instilled in me about the importance uh, of family, of the importance of understanding who we were, both little W-E, just sort of us as individuals, as one family in this part of the state, this part of the country, but also capital W-E, sort of we as as Black Americans. And so, for example, I remember and I talk about in the first essay of the book, the relationship that my grandmother had with photographs. She was my photographs and other sort of artifacts and documents related to our family's history, our lineage, and so forth. And so I remember watching and hearing her talk about and emphasize, and I remember feeling the seriousness with which she kind of went about the work of, she had all these photo albums, and and, and they were meticulously, from my perspective, maybe I didn't know the word back then, but they were very carefully organized, and she was very careful uh, in the way that she would show them to me and emphasize the importance of knowing who people were and knowing the sort of various geographies, like knowing where was where, as I say in the book, the various geographies of of our family. And so that is what I remember. That is what I have first, you know, firsthand and clear memories of. There were not a lot of conversations about sit-ins. There were not a lot of conversations about sort of these inflection points in our racial history, um, you know, sort of in the, the history of black folks in the US. I think that awareness for me came later. It came from conversations with older folks from eventually professors. And then as I've gotten older, I've had my own personal experiences with racism, with discrimination and that sort of thing. Um but as far as, as memories, um, you know, my, my 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 clearest and deepest and most resonant memories. Um, are of the ways that my grandmother emphasized the importance of keeping histories. Um, and as I mentioned in, in our case, our family's histories. There's, If I could say that there's a little bit in the introductory essay about this idea of post-memory, which we get from, among other folks, this sort of Holocaust study scholar and writer, um, Dr. Marianne Hirsch. Uh, and essentially, essentially she talks about post-memory as... The relationship of the generations after. So in this case, if my grandmother, you know, her birthday was on the day that the um, 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham was bombed, uh, if if her memories are the firsthand memories of that moment and the related moments, um, you sort of post-memory is a way to talk about my relationship to those memories, which are transmitted, as she says, Dr. Hirsch, in the way that I've talked about both through the sort of resonance of personal relationships with the folks, with those firsthand experiences, also with the various ways that we come to know the histories for ourselves, whether it's, you know, in a, in a classroom or by way of a book or so forth, and then by way of all of the imaginings and wonderings had at least for me inevitably come from knowing that there's someone in my life that I love more than anybody, that I wanted to be around more than anybody, knowing that there was someone in my life who did have firsthand experiences with those events and what it must have been like for her. I know what it's like for me when I hear about someone Black being killed and, and, uh, uh, unjustly and nothing happening about it. I know what it feels like for me to be on to to be on the receiving end of very obviously and flagrant differential treatment based on how I look, I know what that feels like for me. I know what it 's like to read a story where there's a you know any number of examples of a whole population of people, black Americans, who are denied services and and equal protection under the law and so forth. I know what it's like for me. And I also know how privileged my life has been. I'm a professor, tenure professor at the University of Virginia. And and, and so imagining what it must have been like for someone that I love deeply, who didn't have – my grandmother was a sharecropper and, and who didn't have the privileges that I did and who, were, who was living in the belly of the beast. Um, and so that relationship – is my understanding of this idea of post-memory. So in some ways, I don't remember, right? I, I can't remember. I'm 34. I can't remember what was happening in 1965 or 68 or 55. But in other ways, I can, right, by way of this this notion of post-memory. So, yeah, all sorts of ways, all sorts of ways that that kind of memory enters this project. And And again, you know, the goal is... I think the goal of the of the photo essay collection is both to educate. We've got all of these photos. We've you know, Rich did a tremendous amount of archival and oral history work and talking to folks on the ground in various places across the country, as I'm sure he talked about. He did a lot of work to ensure that there is clear information, historical context for the photographs. And I do a lot of work to try to ensure that there is sort of an emotional, like an added dimension. Uh, and the goal is that by one way or another, that the way that we deal with, to, to speak uh, again to your question, the way that we deal with memory and the way that we try and fashion the book sort of in the, in the shape of a conduit of memory. It's a better way I could have said that, but as sort of a as a way to stir up different sorts of memories in the folks um, and curiosities in the folks who might pick up the book. You know the goal that is the that's the primary goal of the collection. Memory for sure is uh, is a recurring theme.
1: Is there something, Brian, that has replaced the overt, of, uh, like colored entrances and so forth? What are the tools of segregation today?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think some of the kind of easiest examples, easiest places to and This is oftentimes where I start uh, in terms of the classes that I teach and trying to to kind of share these ideas and histories with students. I think some of the easiest ways to point, uh, the easiest places to point are to to federal policies and and institutional practices, sort of um, laws and, and things that are on the books that, and I'll get to some specific examples in a second, that are on the books that maybe we're not intended maybe maybe and we do know that in some cases they were intended but maybe these policies and such were not intended to you know whether it's disenfranchise or if we're talking about housing segregation limit what's possible in terms of where people can live Uh, Maybe they were not intended to discriminate against a particular population of folks. Uh, But in the way that they have played out, we know from the historical record that that was the impact that they had. One thing that I talk about with students is redlining and the work that the federal government did primarily or beginning in the 30s as a response to the Great Depression. The work that the federal government did to at least as many folks would say to repair the U.S. economy to kind of uh, inject a little bit of life and electricity into into an economy that was reeling, um, whether it's the establishment of the Federal Housing Administration or the Homeowners Loan Corporation, things, again, that may have been meant, mechanisms meant, maybe, for the general good. But if we look at how those policies kind of trickled down to the ground and look at, you know, sort of look at those redlining maps where we know, we know that there were folks, Black folks, who would not have access to certain spaces based solely on the red? The maps are a function of these federal policies of the implementation of these programs, but the way that they play out on the ground, we know that Black folks wouldn't have mm-hmm. a, wouldn't have access to to certain to certain areas to certain parts of any. You name the city, any major American city in the country.
1: We did an interview with a gentleman who wrote a book about Levittown, that big yeah. suburb they they built and. You know, people who were poor, people who were African American, were, were barred from buying the Levitown houses. They ended up, they could rent them. And then I looked at my own deed, and we do have, uh, and, and practically every deed, you know, property deed, says you cannot sell this uh, to a person unless the person is Caucasian.
2: Written in ink, right? Printed in ink. Um, yeah, in 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 explicit in explicit terms, I, I I would point quickly to another example, and it's kind of on the opposite end of this dynamic, right? So what we are talking about now is the explicit exclusion of a certain group of folks, and what we what we are learning about now, thanks to the work of, for example, Louise Seamster, Dr. Louise Seemster, who's at the University of Iowa, um, or Dr. Kianga Yamada Taylor. Who I believe is maybe at where is Dr. Taylor? Um, I can't off the top of my head remember, but but the the they give us this language of predatory inclusion, wherein certain populations are included, right? So, for example, you want to you, you want to take out a loan to buy a house. You, um, in terms of the typical characteristics. Maybe you really are not in a position to to be able to handle the responsibilities, like sort of the repayment responsibilities of this loan. But we are going to give you the loan anyway. And guess what ends up and 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 not to mention the quality of the houses that the loans are sort of approved to buy. Um, I think that's a, a obviously a related but a bigger conversation. But you maybe you you are not going to be able to handle the responsibilities. Um, of this opportunity, but we are going to grant it to you anyway. And guess what happens? Right, we get that subprime. I um, was it, subprime mortgage, Wells Fargo, sort of all of these.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you, you, and so, um, and, and I think I think those are two useful examples of the ways that federal policies. And and, and this is the language of federal policies and institutional practices.
1: Essayist uh, and professor at the University of Virginia, Brian Foster, uh, has joined us along with the photojournalist Richard Frischman, talking about the book they have put out called Ghosts of Segregation, a photojournalism collection. You've been listening to the Historians Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. You can donate funds to our GoFundMe campaign. A check to me, made out to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302.